Remain standing, glad you're here. Take your Bibles and let's turn to Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And if you need a pew Bible there in front of you, it's on page 939. 939. And so I'm glad you're here as we stand. We stand not to revere an ancient text. We stand as servants of the living God. Uh, It's like standing before a king. Your wish is my command. We are eager to hear from our king and what he has to say to us through Zephaniah chapter 3, 1 through 8. Listen to the word of the Lord. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She doesn't trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations and their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can come to you in the blood and in the name and in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ, lest this judgment fall upon us. Lord, you are holy, you are gracious, you are just. And Lord, let us learn of you, of your total character. And Lord, may we take account of our lives and know that you take sin seriousness seriously, For you take your own holiness seriously. Father, we are thankful that there is a refuge that we can run to, that we can be hidden by by you from your own wrath. Lord, open our ears that we may hear. Humble our hearts that we may obey that which you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Misnomers. Our world is full of them. A misnomer is a wrong or inaccurate name or designation. For example, a lead pencil is filled with graphite and not lead. A tin can is made out of aluminum. Mincemeat pie, well, it has no meat in it. 
A cola bear isn't a bear, it's a marsupial. A guinea pig isn't from Guinea, and it isn't a pig. It originated in the Andes, and it's a rodent. We park on driveways and drive on parkways, and freeways are not always free. French horns originated in Germany. Cat gut strings for violins are from sheet guts. Horny toads are lizards. Greenland isn't green, and Iceland isn't icy. And finally, Jerusalem, the city of peace, isn't peaceful. In fact, it seems to be in a constant state of conflict. Jerusalem was captured from the Jebusites in 1000 B.C. by King David, who made it his capital city and actually called it the city of David because of that. Today, the ancient city of Jerusalem lies buried some 300 to 100 feet below the present city. Jerusalem has been attacked or besieged 46 times. It has been completely razed to the ground 17 times, making it a misnomer to call it the city of peace. The spiritual shortcomings of the people of Jerusalem are evident over the last 3,000 years. Except for an occasional revival, this city, this city so greatly loved by God, was a continual disappointment. The prophet Zephaniah describes one such period of spiritual darkness around 625 B.C. in the opening chapter of chapter 3 when he pronounces in verse 1, Woe to her! who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. This woe is actually a call to mourn. It's a call to lament. Why? Because of the judgment that awaits this oppressing city. And so once again, like we have throughout the first two chapters here of Zephaniah, here again we see the justice of God on full display. Notice this, God will judge the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because of her continued rebellion against the Lord. Now verse 1 here in chapter 3 has got to be one of the saddest verses in all the Bible on the city of Jerusalem. Coming on the heels of God's judgment in chapter 2, you might actually think that Zephaniah is still talking about the city of Nineveh. But Zephaniah is showing God's people here that Jerusalem, this oppressing city, this rebellious city, full of defilement and corruption, it is no different than Nineveh in her rebellion against the Lord. And therefore, both of these cities are deserving of God's judgment. The people in Jerusalem are described as rebellious. It's a word that's used for rebellion against God. God's people here, they knew God's law. They knew all about it, but they did not obey God's law. They had been warned about their disobedience over and over again. But in spite of that, they continued to revile or revel in their pride and in their self-confidence rejecting God and serving themselves instead. In fact, this was Israel's biggest problem. Their biggest problem from the beginning. 
Even those who had seen God's saving power displayed in the Exodus proved to be, according to Psalm 78, 8, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. And that spirit of rebellion continued to be a problem throughout Jerusalem's history. But this spirit of rebellion wasn't unique to God's people in Jerusalem. This is the refrain we hear repeatedly throughout Scripture. Listen to what it says in Psalm 106, 43, where it says, He, that is God, rescued them many times, but they continued to rebel deliberately and were beaten down by their sin. The psalmist was essentially writing the biography of the people in Jerusalem in that one little verse. But the truth is, this rebellion is our story as well. Which is why we need, we desperately need to seek God's saving grace before it's too late. Zephaniah, once again, is showing us that Jerusalem's greatest enemy was actually herself. She crumbled internally long before the Babylonian army came to destroy her. Her rebellion ate away her soul. This destroyed her trust in the Lord. It undermined the worship of the Lord. And for this, the people of Jerusalem would be judged by the justice of God. And this justice of God, what Zephaniah is doing, he's actually contrasting the justice of God now with the injustice of Jerusalem. Notice this. Look at this in your notes. The injustice of Jerusalem here, rebellion against God leads to corrupt behavior personally and publicly. In verse 1, Zephaniah describes Jerusalem not just as rebellious, but defiled. You see, God's people had made themselves unfit, unclean, unholy as a result of their rebellion against God. In other words, when we disobey God, we defile ourselves. Our lives are now stained by sin, and we feel guilty. We might even feel dirty. This is why, after recalling and even repenting of his adultery with Bathsheba, David prays in Psalm 51 to have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. You see, only God, in His grace, in His mercy, can take away the guilt of our sin, the guilt of our rebellion against God, and wash away our sins, give us a pure heart, and restore our joy. Zephaniah warns the people of Jerusalem that they are rebellious and defiled. But unlike King David, many of them refused to turn to the Lord and seek His saving grace. And this corrupt behavior in our personal lives, it always affects public morality. Zephaniah knew that there is a clear link between a city that was rebellious and defiled and a city that he calls the oppressing city. Mark it down. Rebellion against God leads to corrupt behavior personally, and ultimately, it always, always, always leads to a corrupt society publicly. 
Zephaniah even gives some examples of this public corruption among the political leaders and religious leaders in Jerusalem. Notice what he says in verses 3 through 4. Look at it in your Bibles. He says, her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. In other words, what Zephaniah is showing us here is that all the power brokers in Jerusalem who were supposed to serve the people, who were supposed to guarantee justice and righteousness, they are corrupt. They're corrupt personally, and now we see that corruption played out publicly. These political and religious leaders were so rebellious against God that Zephaniah says at the end of verse 7, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. These political leaders had become so corrupt that their leadership now was devoid of any spiritual life. Zephaniah describes them as roaring lions, as evening wolves, claiming that they stripped the city bare, leaving nothing behind. In other words, the political leaders were were simply living for themselves to the degree that they were fleecing their own people and now using the people for their own personal gain. And the people were, in turn, replicating their behavior. Not only were the political leaders dishonoring God and leading the people to do the same, in what was a much greater tragedy, though, the religious leaders were just as corrupt, if not more. Zephaniah describes them as fickle. In fact, he even says they are treacherous men, not to mention that they profane what is holy and they do violence to the law. And so here we have the prophets and the priests who were treacherous in their behavior. They were unfaithful in handling God's word. In fact, this Hebrew word for doing violence, it can refer to violent actions against people, or it can refer to doing violence by distorting the truth. One commentator sums it up by saying, here it means to do violence to the true meaning and intent of the law, and thereby to wrong and hurt people. The result of this violence to God's word could be seen in the complacency of the people, in their widespread corruption personally and publicly within the city of Jerusalem. Now, given this level of corruption among the people, the justice of God must act. God's justice demands that the city of Jerusalem is judged for her rebellion against God. And that's exactly what we see here. We see the justice of God on full display within the city of Jerusalem. In fact, notice number one, we see the judgment for rebellious people here. What makes this judgment more troubling, though, is not simply that the people were rebellious, but that when they were confronted with the Lord's discipline, they remained hard-hearted toward him. They did not respond to God's mercy and grace, but instead they continued to walk away from God, and as a result, they would now face his judgment. Zephaniah details this path to spiritual ruin and destruction in verse 2 
where he says of Jerusalem, the people within this city, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And, and so this is the spiritual path to ruin, and it happens in four steps. Perhaps you can identify. The first step is we refuse to listen to God's word. Zephaniah says she listens to no voice. Whose voice? Well, specifically, it's God's voice or God's word. But it's more than just refusing to listen to God's word. It's actually a refusal to obey God's word. And for the people in Jerusalem, it was a failure to pay attention to God's word, God's law, and obey it. And that led to this corruption within the city of Jerusalem. It led to their own personal defilement and to the oppressive action of their leaders. It led to their complacency and ultimately it led to their apostasy. You see, it is possible to actually hear God's word and yet not pay serious attention to what God is saying. Jesus stressed the importance of listening, of hearing the word of God. After telling the parable of the sower, he makes it clear that it was a parable about listening. When he says in Luke 8, 8, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, there's more to just, quote, listening than just staying awake during a sermon this morning. Or quickly reading a few Bible verses before rushing out to work in the morning. James tells us in James 1, verse 22 and 25, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And so the first step to spiritual ruin, to spiritual destruction, is we refuse to listen. We refuse to obey God's word. The second step is we refuse to submit to God's word. Zephaniah says she accepts no correction. Now, folks, that is the characteristic of the proud. You ever try to correct one of your kids and they won't hear it? Why? Because they're proud at heart. They accept no correction and instead do things their own way, acting as if they are the masters of their own lives, refusing to submit to God's word and God's will. When Jesus called people to follow him, he laid out the necessity of learning from him in Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine. 29. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he says. In 2 Timothy three sixteen, Paul reminded Timothy that the scriptures were inspired, inspired for the very purpose of teaching 
rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The implication is that we should submit to God's word, receiving its rebuke, receiving its correction and instruction. For to reject God's word is to reject God himself. It's the mark of our rebellion. It's the mark of our pride. Which then leads to the third step. We refuse to trust in the Lord. A refusal to hear and submit to God's word inevitably leads sooner or later to unbelief. So it's not surprising then to read what Zephaniah says next about Jerusalem. She does not trust in the Lord. And so in a very real sense, Jerusalem had denied the foundational core of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is to trust in God, to trust in the Savior. The Bible is abundantly clear that faith in God begins with trusting Him. The people in Jerusalem, however, had failed to acknowledge God, failed to trust Him. But understand, listen, we were created for worship. We are made in the image of God. We are created for worship. And so, when we rebel against God, we will turn to all other substitutes people put in God's place. We will worship. But these substitutes, these idols that we worship, they are powerless to save us from God's coming judgment. They are powerless to redeem us from the bondage of our sin and to set us free. Remember what Zephaniah said in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Even their money, even their wealth couldn't save them. These are false idols, false gods that cannot help us. Which leads to a fourth step. We refuse to draw near to the Lord. Finally, as a result of not trusting God, Zephaniah says of Jerusalem, she does not draw near to her God. Instead, they pursued their own desires, leaving God behind. Paul addressed the same issue in the New Testament. When he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, he says, for although they knew God, listen, the people of Jerusalem, They knew all about God. Neither glorified him, Paul says, as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, in birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Listen, in Zephaniah's day, the failure to trust in the Lord and to draw near to the Lord, it led to the people's corrupt behavior in the city personally and then publicly which in turn led to God's judgment on Jerusalem. God is just. He is always just. And what we see here 
It's the justice of God on full display against a city he loves. Now, faced with such a dire scenario all around them, the faithful followers of the Lord, they're in that city. The remnant. Man, they might have easily been tempted to despair or even cynicism. After all, since their entire society there in Jerusalem seemed to be rapidly going downhill, it would have been easy for them to conclude that faithfulness to the Lord was just not worth it. After all, nothing around them seemed like it was changing. It was getting worse, in fact. And so perhaps they should just adjust their beliefs. Perhaps they should alter their convictions to match the prevailing realities of their culture. But such an analysis would have been utterly flawed, for it wrongly leaves the Lord out of the picture. Which brings us to another way that God's justice is displayed within the city of Jerusalem. See the hope here from the righteous Lord. Yes, we need to see the judgment on rebellious people. Because that is our destiny if we do not seek the Lord's saving grace. But we also must see the hope that comes from our righteous God. Listen, the prophet has spoken about the corruption and oppression in Jerusalem, but his message is not without hope. God has not abandoned his people altogether. The Lord is actually present with them. Notice this hope in verse 5. It's actually amazing. It says, the Lord within her. Within who? Within her is what? He's speaking about Jerusalem. It's personifying personifying it as a woman here. She, the Lord, is within the city here. He does know injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. And so here we see the righteousness of God on full display because of his justice. Notice this, first of all, God is righteous in his character. He is righteous in his character. God's righteousness is an aspect of his holiness, which means that God is absolutely pure and set apart. He is distinct from all else. As the prophet said to God in Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why? Because God is holy. He is righteous. Or as Zephaniah says here in verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. Think about it. In light of God's holiness, in light of God's righteousness, it's rather remarkable that Zephaniah can still proclaim that the Lord is present with his corrupt people. Presumably, God is there because there was still a remnant of faithful believers in the city who have sought the Lord. Listen, we hang on to the same truth even today. The righteous Lord is with us within cities and countries that are corrupt. Whatever our situation may be, 
However, much corruption and spiritual darkness may be in our cities and country, God is with his faithful people who seek him, who trust him, who follow him. The righteous God of hope is present with his people, and this ought to encourage us. Zephaniah was reminding the faithful followers here in the city of Jerusalem that there is always, always, always hope through the darkness. Perhaps Zephaniah was reminding them of this hope through God's common grace that is revealed in these acts of justice and compassion that had not completely disappeared within the city of Jerusalem. Zephaniah may be referring to such acts when he says of the Lord, every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. Which brings us to a second aspect of God's righteousness. God is righteous not just in his character, but because of that, God is also righteous in his actions. You say, what exactly does that mean? Well, in his systematic theology book, Wayne Grudem writes, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Zephaniah's message is that God is now acting in a way that was consistent with his righteous character when it comes to the corruption in Jerusalem. Zephaniah will show that a righteous God must judge righteously and that a rebellious world deserves judgment. When the Lord declares in verse 8, For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. But before Zephaniah speaks further about God's judgment, listen, he offers a message of hope here in verse 5. And it is a huge message of hope to us where he says he does know injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. In other words, listen to me, every day God acts with perfect wisdom and justice. Every day. He doesn't take some days off. He doesn't skip a day. It is every day. That's good news in the midst of a corrupt and rebellious world in which we live. As one commentator writes, despite the appearance that corruption prevails on every side, the Lord daily manifests His righteous judgments. As faithfully as the Lord provided daily manna for His people during their trial in the wilderness, so in the chaotic last days of Jerusalem, the Lord's righteousness was coming to light. And don't miss this. Each day God does not fail. That means that we can totally rely on the Lord to keep his promises to us and to act with perfect wisdom and justice, yes, in both judging us, but also in saving us and delivering us. Listen, the righteous Lord never fails his people, even though we may fail him. In fact, we do all the time, but he never lets us down. However, notice the sad, sad, sad verdict here at the end of verse 5. Zephaniah says, but. Oh, there's the but. It's a contrast. It's a contrast here between the 
righteousness of God, the justice of God that is on full display, and now what we see of the people of God in Jerusalem. But the unjust knows no shame. In spite of God's righteous presence in this city, it is still true that in Jerusalem here, the unjust knows no shame. In other words, the rebellious, they could see absolutely nothing wrong in how they were living. And therefore, they felt no shame. They felt no guilt about their corrupt behavior. They no longer had any real awareness of a sovereign God who was the judge of all the earth. They are now at the end of their spiritual path to ruin and destruction as God's judgment awaits them. Listen, this rebellion against God, though, it is even more tragic when you consider that God, at the same time, in all of this, He is graciously warning them of His judgment to come so that they would come to their own spiritual senses and seek His saving grace. Look what God says in verse 6. He, and again, He is speaking to God's people in Jerusalem. And so it's like he's telling these people here, the city of Jerusalem, this oppressor, he said, listen, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. Why is God saving that? Listen, the remarkable thing here is God was using the judgment of the surrounding nations that we saw in chapter 2 in order to teach his people here in Jerusalem. God seems to be saying to them, listen, I wanted you to learn the lesson of history. Whoa. Especially my punishment of wickedness. Why? So that you, when you learn this lesson, when you see what happens, so that you will be motivated, so that you will be compelled now to seek me and my saving grace before it's too late. I wanted to spare you. I wanted to give you hope through the darkness. God's actual words are found here in verse 7, where he says, I said, surely you will fear me. Surely you will now accept correction from me. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. This is so sad. It's so tragic. It's like talking to a rebellious teenager. He's warning them over and over and over again the path that they are walking down. You are trying to show them where it ends. But in their pride, they will not listen. They will not hear you. And they keep walking down that path. And you know where it ends. And it breaks your heart. This is God's heart now toward his people in Jerusalem. The tragedy of the city was that the people did not heed God's warnings and seek Him. The sad truth was that in spite of God's judgments on other nations, the people and their leaders were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. In fact, this phrase here literally means that they 
rose up early to act corruptly. They did not simply just drift into corruption. They gave themselves up over to sin with eagerness. They rose up early to make all their deeds corrupt. And so the obvious question that becomes, is there any hope? Is there any hope in the midst of all this? Is there any hope then for God's people and even the larger world if even those here in Jerusalem were eager to make all their deeds corrupt? And the answer is absolutely there is hope. Look what it says. Look what God says here in verse 8. He says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Here is the hope. Justice is coming. Justice is coming. That is our hope. Now, that is a two-edged sword, though. Because if you are outside of the refuge of God, justice for you is not hopeful. But if you are hidden in the Lord, justice coming is very hopeful. Notice this. God's justice is coming to the world because of humanity's rebellion against the Lord. But there's hope. There is hope for those who seek the Lord and His saving grace before it's too late. Listen, the words here, wait for me. When God says, wait for me, listen, those words are intended to strike fear in the hearts of the people. It's like when you were a kid and your mom told you after you were mischievous, repeatedly, just wait till your father gets home. And you knew what that meant. Why? God is coming, he says. Wait for me. God is coming with indignation. He's coming with burning anger to judge the nations for their rebellion against him. The result of that final day of judgment will be that the whole world will be consumed by the fire of God's jealousy. Peter, the Apostle Peter, he talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You see, when you're hidden in the Lord, when he is your refuge, you look forward to God's justice coming. You look forward to the day of the Lord. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Make no mistake, judgment is coming to the whole world. But there's hope. Oh, there is hope for those who seek the Lord and his saving grace before it's too late. To wait for God. Listen, it also implies trust in the Lord. Trust in the promises of God to his people. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in 3018. He says, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who 
wait for him. So this call to wait for God, it implies the promise of blessing and hope for those who put their trust in the Lord. But let's be honest. Let's get real here. Like the faithful believers in Zephaniah's day, it is so easy for us today to be discouraged by the corruption and spiritual darkness in our cities and country. In those situations when you have no power, you have no ability to make justice prevail, in those situations where the truth is buried by the secularism of our culture, it is easy, oh so easy, to slide into cynicism and despair. We may even start to believe that God is absent from this world. That he doesn't really care about us. He doesn't even care about what is right and what is just, what is wrong. We might conclude that it doesn't even matter now how we live. God either can't or he won't do anything to make things right. We might even think that God has abandoned us and let us down, leaving us to fend for ourselves. It would be easy to think this way about God, would it not? And yet, Zephaniah's message about the justice of God gives us hope through the darkness, and it should encourage us to stay faithful to the Lord. Zephaniah reminds us that the ruins and rubble of life that we see all around us now are not the end of the story. The injustices that people suffer are very real, very painful to endure, but they will not have the final word. There is a day about to dawn that brings hope to a hope of a new creation where it will be remade in holiness, justice, and righteousness. Listen, God is not finished yet. Aren't you thankful for that? He is not finished yet with you with our church or this world. He is going to act to bring justice to all along with full and final deliverance for all of those who have sought His saving grace and found a refuge in Him. This is good news indeed. This is a reason to hope. And as we will see next Sunday, this is a reason to burst into song and shout for joy. We don't have to wait till next Sunday to do that. You can shout for joy and burst into song right now because of the justice of God. If you have sought Him and found saving grace in Him. If you are outside of the grace of God, like Zephaniah said to the Jerusalem, woe on you. Woe on you. Because you will feel the full weight of God's wrath. But listen, in God's mercy and grace, He extends to you, He calls out to you, and He exhorts you, He pleads with you to come, to seek His saving grace before it's too late. And to find refuge in Jesus Christ, the one who took God's wrath on himself on the cross in your place so that you would not have to experience that. So you could be delivered. 
that is something to shout about. That is something to sing about. And then to think what happens when all this is done in the new creation, when God's kingdom is established here on earth, and we are a part of that. Amen, amen, and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wise are your ways. Wise is your plan of redemption. And so thank you for providing the solution to our sin and condemnation by bearing the judgment in your Son. We rejoice in your justice that is coming and the hope that it brings to our souls. And if we haven't yet, let us seek your saving grace before it's too late. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.